Welcome to the Lindsay Hadley Podcast Show. I'm coming to you from the North Shore of Oahu, where weekly I interview some of the world's most inspiring people from business, philanthropy, and entertainment. I love collecting humans, and these are some of my favorites I've found along the way. This podcast is brought to us by Capita Financial Network. Do you need help with the next steps of your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call or schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome to the Lindsay Happy Podcast Show. Today we have Lauren Herring N on my podcast as my guest. She's based here in Oahu in the North Fork near me. And we met actually one of our Capital Women's Retreats that we put on um, with her friend Tahiti Emperor, who's just an amazing lady here on island who does so many great things for fitness and for wellness for women. And her husband's a professional surfer, many we know, and Billy Emperor. And, um, we're just so thrilled to connect and talk a little bit about, you know, some really important issues around mental health. Lauren, as a background mental health professional, Lauren, why don't you start by sharing a little bit about your story and what got you into this space and what your expertise is? You, we've talked a little about you specialize in anxiety disorders and, and other and other various um, interpersonal dynamics. And it'd be so wonderful for us to hear about such an important issue today. Sure. So I'm an associate clinical mental health therapist licensed in the state of Utah. And like Lindsay said, yeah, I specialize in anxiety and OCD more specifically. So um, really what got me here, it kind of began as a very honed in focused um, journey for me and then has over time within clinical practice really expanded and evolved into something that I never would have expected for myself. Um, I started off my undergraduate in special education and in special ed, it's broken down into two different sectors. One of the sectors serves children ages three to 21, and then the other sector is birth to three. And I worked in the birth to three sector for about five years. And what that consisted of was home visiting with families of the child with the special need. and. In that, I just really recognized that I felt ill-equipped to support the comprehensive holistic need of the family. And so I went back to study counseling psychology and really through that process, had my nose down. My intention was to do parent-child interaction therapy, a really specific maternal infant mental health focus. And that's not where I've landed myself. I've really expanded my journey, um, kind of through fate and happenstance into anxiety and OCD and have found myself um, really kind of shifting my own theoretical orientation and my approach. And, you know, I was thinking about this before coming on and just recognizing how full circle this journey has been for me thinking about myself as a young person and just my propensity towards understanding people's stories and their histories and recognizing that's what I get to do with my life now is you know hear people's journeys and help them untangle where the distress comes from and how that's perpetuated for them and so yeah I work with um people varying in ages 
young children. My youngest was six. And then all the way up to, you know, 60 sound. So I've, I've really expanded my passion for people across the lifespan, I think. And it's been kind of beautiful. Amazing, Lauren. It's such um, an issue today. There's a kind of, if you will, like an epidemic in mental health. We're seeing anxiety and depression at historic highs. Um, the pandemic even exacerbated it further. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about what's contributing to that in society, whether it's like our environment, our diets, our the social, you know, social media, the pressures that we have of today. What is your kind of overall thesis when you talked about your, you know, your modality change, your thinking on it? Um, where where are you at? Tell, share with us and orientate us a little bit your paradigm. You know, it's fascinating, I think, at this point in time to look at the dissonance we have as humans, where it seems like there's such a belief that we are so connected when we look at technology and social media and whatnot. But when we look at true, deep, authentic connection, you know, likes are not friendships. And I think that we get very deceived by how connected we really are. And I think that the space of technology also allows for, especially those individuals with a propensity towards anxiety, there's so much empty room for our mind to wander and create stories that really might not serve us and might, you know, perpetuate our anxiety or our distress or our sense of belonging. And I think, you know, compound that with COVID where really our messaging was to fear other people, right? That's kind of our takeaway was being close with other humans was dangerous. And I think it's really hard to deprogram that fear, especially just a few years, I guess, out of the pandemic, right? It's it's hard to expect as a species, I suppose, that we would have deprogrammed what was such a fear-based way of relating to one another. And so, yeah, I think it's so compounded and so nuanced. And I think the other element here is we're talking about it, right? We have a space and we have a new level of open-mindedness towards talking about our common humanity and where we all share difficulties and struggles and anxiety, depression, those kinds of things are really being given more of a platform. And I think just naturally we're seeing it more because of those conversations as well. And, and Lauren, I think, you know, as you're, as you're saying that it's so true, like, do you think it's, um, something that, because for the first time we have a language, you know, I mean, we've destigmatized the idea of going to therapy and mental health in this generation. And so now people are able to address the things that our parents and grandparents didn't even dare look at or understand or, you know, we're evolving in our ability to communicate and reach mental health care. Do you think that a lot of it is just um, kind of that awareness and that destigmatization, or do you think it isn't environmental, but it actually is people are more mentally ill than they were before? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's both. I think that on one hand, there is this destigmatization that's happened. I think we've also been given platforms and language to allow us to have these conversations. 
And I think that at the same time, there has been an increase in mental health and in illnesses. And I I think going back to, you know, the etiology of that, I think it's so hard to really decipher what is that true cause and why are we seeing this uptick? But I think that the more that we're actually able to continue having these conversations and continue in our destigmatizing process, we're also really confronting some of the fears that previously kept us silent and kept maybe the phenomenons within mental health kind of occurring. You know, one of those maybe more specifically is suicide. For so long, it was thought, if we talk about this, it's going to increase the occurrence of it. When in fact, that's that's not what the research shows us at all, right? The research shows us that if we talk about it, if we destigmatize it, if we create some humanity around it, people find connection, people decrease isolation, and therefore may actually overcome what previously felt like there was only one way out of. So I think there's so many, so many elements at play here, really. That's so fascinating because you're so right. I mean, I I feel like recently, you know, in my community, having my own lived experience with with mental ill health, with anxiety and depression, which thank heavens I'm not um, struggling anymore, and I and I was able to, by the grace of God and all the tools and all the access, for whatever reason, I'm free of it at the moment, and and I and I believe, you know, really turned a corner, and I and I sit there and think, my think mine was a combination of things, you know, epigenetic, situational. Uh, I think chemical, there's like a lot of things that go in and I don't really know. And I don't even know that I'll ever know, but I just know that like I ran after getting well, like, like my life depended on it because it did, you know, what do you say to people that like are also trying everything and they're not getting well? And like, what do you find are, what does the research show in, in the hope for overcoming, you know, anxiety and depression in today? Like, is it, do we have, you know, is it decent numbers of people can actually um, get a handle on it or eventually be cured or be asymptomatic or suppress that, that, that illness? Or do you see that like a lot of the people that I know that have lived with it most of their life keep living with it and then you'll have this occasional like miraculous story, but a lot of people um, can really get despondent and discouraged, I think, today. Um, and, and what do you give, you know, advice as a broad spectrum of like, people are looking down the barrel of like, this is something I've been struggling with a long time. You know, now what, what kind of hope is there? You know, it's so funny as we're talking because of course the internal therapist in me, I have my little notebook and I'm writing down little keywords that you're saying that are really sticking out to me. And what you said kind of leading up to this question really did stand out to me in your own recovery was at the moment. Right. And I think that that is such a nuance within mental health is that when we think about recovery or we think about cure, really, I think we're looking at alleviation of symptoms, right? Because there is that neurochemical, biological, environmental, there's so many elements that influence whether you have depression, anxiety, whatever it might be, that there's not necessarily cure, but there is hope. 
to find alleviation from symptoms. And I think that when we look at, you know, the combination of psychotherapy with maybe psychopharmaceuticals, right, more of that medication-based approach, depending on the severity of someone's experience, the research is incredibly positive when we look at combining those two sources to better someone's circumstance and someone's experience. And, you know, something that I look at with my clients a lot is kind of this image of a mountain where there's peaks and valleys on the climb. And I have so many clients who on their journey will experience those highs and feel as though they've they've overcome something, which they have, right? It's monumental to battle depression. It's monumental to battle anxiety. And there are those natural dips that come. And I think being able to also recognize that this dip is not a sentence. This dip is not your prognosis, more that it's part of this climb and this journey. And I think part of the individual's therapeutic journey is arriving at a place where they find their hope. And I think hope looks different for all of us. But I also think pulling on your resources to maintain tenacity and I think one of those huge things that I really instill with my clients is self-compassion, right? Trying to notice when you're in that place of maybe judging yourself for not being where you want to be, trying to allow yourself to just pay attention, to release the judgment, but to also recognize that you're not the only one whose journey looks like this right? That's part of the human experience and you're not alone in that. I think that mere sense of common humanity for a lot of people is so uplifting. And not to ramble on, but I think the other element that needs to be addressed here is when I'm saying there's not cure, it's also because if we think about anxiety more specifically, there's functional anxiety, right? There's that internal arousal, right? It's called Yerkes Dodson principle. And really what it says is that a certain amount of arousal is good for us. That's where we get motivation. That's how we get places on time. That's why we wake up to our alarm in the morning is because there's a certain amount of arousal that's driving us to do these things that really there's not inherent pleasure on the other side of it, right? But there's this buzzing that gets us going. And so I think our goal with anxiety is to take it from dysfunctional to functional. And that's maybe the crux of recovery. That is so great because the utility of anxiety, I see what you're saying, that there's an aspect of it that is useful to be, um, like you said, driven or provoked into change or behavior it's a protection it's a way of being alert and you know if that parasympathetic nervous system coming online for is for a reason to help us survive right and help us have you know um help us adapt to our environment but when it becomes maladaptive and it becomes suffering and it becomes um chronic and it becomes you know yeah just just dysfunctional that's when it's just so debilitating I know for me, like one of the greatest things, it went up for me, my darling friend, 
in that song one day I was just weeping and weeping and I was in this like deep style of, you know, just having this heartbreaking moment from an exchange I had had with a loved one and that had really spiraled me and triggered me. And I was like in her lap and she was just like petting my hair like I was a puppy dog. And she just like, the fact that I could have a friend, a girlfriend that could like tell me that, you know, that it was okay to be that broken in front of. And I remember he said, and I was like, I'm mentally ill. And it was like hard to say those words because, you know, anxiety, depression feel like something a lot of people say now. But like when you say mental illness, it sounds so much more foreboding, I guess. I don't know if that word's still so charged for me for some reason, that vernacular. So I said that and she said, you're just human. And it was like so amazingly beautiful thing to say. And I just didn't feel broken. I just felt literally cradled and proverbially cradled by her love. And I, you know, people can be so misunderstanding about it. They don't understand it. They've never dealt with it. If they think they, they can't really pr- truly understand the difference between feeling down, feeling anxious, the tanks, and then having clinical anxiety or depression. And then there's a spectrum of that. Um, and all of us have different ways of coping and all of us have different support systems. And um, what is the best way? I'm sure a lot of people um, want to know this because this is so common. A, what is the best way to help or talk to somebody dealing with this? And then what is the best way to ask for help or talk to others if you're the one dealing with it? Those are kind of really big questions. Well, I love the question of what is the best way to help? How do we meet someone in that place of vulnerability? And what I love about the example that you gave with you and your friend is she was not afraid to sit in your pain with you. She was not distressed or marred or put off by being in that place of humanity with you. And I think that that's our first job is if we have a loved one who is in a place of distress, we have to first be able to regulate and recognize what that pulls up in us, right? As humans, I think it's really hard to look at someone who's in pain and to be okay with it, right? We think about like kind of the the nuance of funerals and how so many people are uncomfortable and don't know what to say. And, you know, this idea of human suffering really is so painful for us to sit eye to eye with someone and watch suffering, witness suffering. And so I think that's our first job is recognize, can I sit with you? Can I just be with you? And maybe if we notice I can't, what do I need to do to regulate myself so that I can meet your storm with my call? Right. And that's something that I talk to a lot of like parents of children with anxiety with is if we enter a situation and we are supposed to be the pillar. And yet our system is so dysregulated by the other person's distress. Both of us are going to get escalated and it's going to probably become some irritable argument and it's just going to be fallout, right? And so I think our responsibility is how do I calm myself before being available to you? And then I think that each person, you know, is so unique in what they need and even thinking about the nuances of depression versus anxiety, 
you know, there's not a one size prescription fits all for our response in those moments. But I think what I what I love about what you also said is there was something so soothing fundamentally about being cradled and having your hair stroked by this friend. I mean, we think back to infancy, right? What calms the neurological system of an infant when they're in distress is we rock them, we hold them, we let them know we're there for them. And when we're able to communicate, we ask, how can I be there for you? What do you need? And I think that's our power is really being able to use communication to say, how can I be there for you? I see that you're in pain. Right. And that meets, that meets our needs within depression and that meets our needs within anxiety. And that also lets the other person know you're not alone in your suffering. And that in and of itself is so validating and so free. That is just so profound. And I think there is so much to learn about recognizing that it, it does ask a lot of us to show up, you know, um, and I, that's one of the gifts that I had from struggling with mental health is like, I'm, I now have the empathy on the other side of that, lean into people and I understand the color and the texture may not, maybe not exactly, but I, there's a, there's an understanding that I could have had otherwise. And so kind of on that follow-up question, what, what do you recommend to your patients or clients or, or, or to the public about reaching out and communicating their needs and getting help and, and how that maybe it specifically helps them when they're, because it's hard to ask when you're the one grounding, you know, it's hard to get the help you need, I think, for a lot of people. Right, right. I think that what I might say in that moment is try to look beyond your immediate comfort. Try to look at that long term and recognize that right now it might be so paralyzing the thought of putting yourself out there and asking for help. But what we also know when we're in the crux of mental illness is that our instincts are often deceiving, right? Like when we're depressed, we want to withdraw and isolate, and that's the worst thing we can do. And with anxiety, we want to avoid, and that's the worst thing we can do. And so just recognizing that maybe that gut fear that's coming up about reaching out might be a little misleading in this moment and really trying to look at what would my future self thank me for. And I think that Another nuance to that 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 I love about where we've come with mental health is because there are micro conversations happening about this. You know, I have a couple of clients that even come to mind where they've really had to put themselves out there in telling other people, I have a therapy appointment or, you know, I'm really anxious about this and I think number one is recognizing who's in my inner circle of vulnerability and trust that I am, that I know is going to meet me here in this space with honesty and integrity and is going to be able to kind of share this with me. But then also recognizing that it's possible that someone on that outside circle might already have a connection with a therapist or a resource or something. And a lot of times, if we feel really vulnerable putting ourselves out there in the way that, you know, it is to ask for help, knowing that there's someone trusted by someone you trust, that kind of secondary relationship, getting referrals from friends, 
is always a really great option. And I think that, you know, once you put yourself out there in that way, you can kind of recognize, is this therapist a good fit for me? And if not, then they can refer you. But making sure that you feel really safe in the way you're going about that process, I think is so important. Oh, I think it's so good that you said, is this therapist good for me? Because um, it was just about seven years of my struggle I, I, with um, anxiety and depression. And, and it's been since last fall that I haven't had any symptoms and it's just so life-changing. But I know that like I had to date around, so to speak, on finding the right caregivers. And there's at different times, there was somebody who was really great for that moment, but then I felt like I need to actualize it as something different or there were different modalities. Like you, it's really interesting how some people find the one person and they work the rest of their life and other people are like, there's seasons and there are some really bad therapists. Like, do we talk about that a minute? Like how, you know, how, I mean, you're fabulous, but I've seen you at work, you leading these women's groups and discussions. You're so intelligent and so gifted at your job, but you know, um, how can someone find like a referral is a great offer, uh, uh, option, but what, how can someone know, like, what are some good signs of a good therapist and what are some red flags? And then, you know, what would you recommend if someone's figuring out what works for them or any, any thoughts or insights about picking a mental health professional? Yeah. I mean, I think number one is you want to make sure that they're licensed. I think number two, you want to make sure that they're trained in what you need. Right. That's, I think, where a lot of wires tend to get crossed is really making sure that, you know, I'm, I specialize in OCD and there's a specific approach for OCD. And if someone's not trained in that specific approach, it can actually cause harm. And so we want to make sure that the person is trained in what you need. And there's different specific avenues for that, right? Like the International Obsessive Compulsive Foundation. That's where you can find like a directory for an OCD specialist. Um, the Association for Anxiety and Depression, they have a same directory. Um, there's general platforms like Psychology Today, where you can kind of look at an individual's trainings or areas of specialty um, and kind of nuance in that way, those maybe more surface level things of how does this fit from a logistical standpoint? But then I think looking at the actual nuance of the therapeutic relationship is so important. And I love how you put it, like, I had to date around. And I actually say that in my first meeting with clients is like, I really want you to take this as almost a first date. And when you leave here, I want you to think about the feel. And I want you to tune into that emotional center for you and really see, does it feel safe? Does it feel like a reciprocal relationship? Does it feel like I have the training and the nuance to address your need at this time? And I think that, you know, that's really tuning into just goodness a bit. You know, we do that with friends. We do that with intimate relationships, partners, whatever it might be, is we look for goodness a bit. And I think that's no different with your therapist. Um the other nuance there is therapists are human. You're human. You have off days. They have off days. And so, you know, one awkward session or one thing that they said that maybe hit wrong, maybe that's a place rather than kind of 
get me out of here. This isn't working. That's even a place, you know, I always encourage my clients, talk to me. What do you need? What's not being met? Like, how do we address this? And I think that a lot of times if we have a relationship where there's trust and vulnerability, you know, as the therapist, I'm expecting you to come in and share parts of yourself that you've probably never shared with someone else. And so I need to be in a place as the professional to also say, my pride doesn't matter here. I need to know what you need. And we need to be able to have those hard reciprocal conversations together and problem solves through that together. And, you know, that's probably a bigger representation of, you know, ruptures and repairs in our relationships is a lot of the time the therapeutic relationship represents our relationship outside of sessions. And we have a tendency to pull in our patterns and our responses and our dynamics. And so sometimes it can also serve as this really reparative environment for individuals to discover how do we have a rupture or a wound and how do we repair that in maybe a new healthy way. That that's so helpful. And I'm I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, your the expertise is so important and and you nailed it about the non-license. My first encounter with a quote unquote mental health professional was not not trained, not licensed, and really like studying, unbeknownst to me, studying and like kind of this yoga instructor that was like taking all this liberty to meet with people and do sessions and charging. And I didn't realize. And I mean, I I've thought about that so much. I'm sure that that person intended well, but looking back the all of the breaches of confidentiality, the conflicts of interest, the so many aspects of what what how this individual handled me and the situation was utterly clear she didn't have training, right? Um, I'm sure that if she went back now, if she did complete her training, she would be mortified about how she handled all of that because it was it was so damaging. Um, but but I but you know, while I give her grace to 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 say, hey, I don't this person was probably learning too. I didn't know what I didn't know to ask these questions. Are you licensed? I just had someone refer and then I was like meeting and then like talking. About I just didn't know. And so, you know, um, it's really interesting. And, um, you know, an acquaintance was like, well, you're meeting in her house. And like later, an actual like, you know, tenured professor with years and years of clinical experience, we met in his house. So it's like, I, there's no way to know, but you just have to ask questions, right? I mean, yeah. You have to ask the questions. So like, and then now with technology, like, you know, you can do things remote and that's such a gift. Um, are you able, because you're based here in Oahu, you're licensed in Utah, are you able to see people remote, Lord, or can patients and, you know, connect with you and work with you anywhere in the country? Or like, what, what is the left, right limits of like your, your, um, yeah, your, your permitting on what you're able to do? Yeah, so I practice strictly via telehealth. That's just kind of been my preference, but also, you know, working with clients and recognizing the feedback that they've given, it just opens so many possibilities. You know, we don't have to deal with commute times. We don't have to deal with taking off from work. A lot of times my schedule, because I live on Oahu, I can see people at, you know, eight, nine o'clock when the kids have gone to bed. And, you know, if they're more of those night owls, then that really opens up some more flexible hours and uh the 
kind of nuance of my work with clients is that our company has hired a lawyer to make sure that we do this in the most legal, ethical way. But for clients who travel out of state, we have an addendum that allows us to go under mental health consultant. And what we found was that, you know, we work with a lot of individuals who are in college. And if you think about they go home for Thanksgiving, they go home for Christmas, they go home for spring break, they go home for summer. And legally under a therapeutic license, you would need to pause care during those times. And for a lot of people, going home to see family can pull up a lot of stuff. And so then we're in the ethical kind of contamination of abandonment versus continuation of care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we have some outlined agreement forms that essentially say state we are licensed therapists and here's our license information and our number. If you agree to this and you travel out of state, we will see you under a consultant lens. So that gives us a bit of flexibility and continuity for care. That's amazing. It's so, what a gift. Um, you know, I, I did some uh, global awareness for mental health um, in, in the, the developed world. So th- this would be like the developing world would be all of, you know, Africa, Sub-Saharan, you know, Africa areas, specifically a lot of focus on Southeast Asia, you know, places where they're, you know, South America, Central America, there's such a disparity in access to care, like in in um, certain places in Africa, like I, I believe it was in Zimbabwe, they had one, one psychiatrist in the entire country for the whole population. I mean, there's places in, in Africa, where they imprison people that are struggling with bipolar episodes or schizophrenia, you know, instead of getting them care. And if we think that we have a difficult time here, I mean, just, which we do, things could improve drastically in, in, in America and, and the developed world. In the third world, it's astounding. I mean, there's still total um, misunderstanding and and it's just heartbreaking to see for the lack of care. What do you, what is the kind of the goal standards in terms of um, when you look at, you know, some kind of, I don't know about snacks or biohacks or, or tools. Like, I, I mean, does a therapist use everything under the sun from, I know I've tried everything from exercise to diet. They talk about more which I moved to Hawaii. Probably that was for my mental health. I, you know, I, um, relationships, boundaries, all the books, you know, I did all the alternative things from like ice baths to breath work to you know, um, energy healing. I mean, all the things are, there's like a whole spectrum of like tool sets that people can use. What in the therapy world, what do they recommend? They say, try everything and see what helps or, or is it like, you know, well, actually we don't want to, in the traditional medicine world in Western medicine, a lot of times you can have, you know, cross contamination from different, you know, you like something can undo the work of something else, or you can't then know if what where you're getting your things from as well as you enmesh a bunch of different things at once. And there's some complication in that. Is it similar in the mental health society? You know, society and how do you feel about trying all these different things that are coming up on deck in culture and that are available? Fascinating question. I don't think there's a concise, direct answer for that because. You know, as with pretty much everything that I've answered at this point, there's so many nuances. But I think that in the world of therapy psychology, where we really kind of set our 
self apart from maybe those non-licensed clinicians is that we're looking at empirically based treatments, we're looking at evidence-based treatments. And so we really want to see a strong research base that that supports positive outcomes of any intervention. And we want to see that evidence base across different groups of people, across time. And we want to be able to really isolate and control for any variable that's going to cloud this idea of like, how do I know this was really the thing causing the change? Right. And so there's different um, publications available for therapists that really outline what is this treatment, right? Like, is it crystals? Is it a gluten-free diet? Is it sun? Is it ice baths? Whatever, whatever. And you know, it shows, is there research? Yes or no. And then it shows, what does that research reveal to us? And so I think, you know, that's kind of the baseline answer. But then, of course, it's so unique to each clinician and their orientation, but also the clients that they're working with. You know, I think one of the things that I really pull into my practice is my clients' values. And so if for them, you know, their depression has kept them from exercising and kept them from sauna, ice bath, whatever it might be, kept them from engaging in cultural practices, whatever it might be, I'm really going to say, how do we get back to those values, right? I'm not necessarily looking at, is this ice bath going to trigger, you know, whatever neurochemical side effects that we're hoping for, which it, it, you know, I love sauna ice bath. I'm not going to knock that, but I think that we're really looking at how do I get back to a life that's meaningful and wholehearted to me? And if that contains some of these entities, go for it. But we're also using science and research to get us to those values. If a person isn't ready to wait all the way into therapy or maybe can't even afford it, are there tools or strategies that can be used as like short-term hacks if someone's in that really, if they're in a really low state or they're very, very anxious or having an OCD episode or something that you know in your toolkit? Is there something where like, yeah, we can turn to this thing and it might, you know, you need to do the bigger, broader work with maybe all this other care, but is there, are there any kind of levers people can pull? Is there, is there experiencing any of these aspects? I think my favorite lever is bibliotherapy books, right? So many brilliant researchers and clinicians have produced such immense literature. And now at this point with technology branching into videos and podcasts and all of those kinds of things. And so I, I do think that the breadth of information and resources available has really expanded. Um, kind of a funny, I'm kind of surprised I'm even going to say this, but there are some Facebook groups available. Like I'm on a clinician OCD, um, body focused repetitive behaviors, Facebook group, and it's all licensed clinicians, but people with OCD can join these certain groups where there are licensed clinicians present, giving out research-based information and disseminating resources. And so I think if people are feeling kind of like, where do I start? Or, you know, this is hard to access because therapy is expensive, right? I can't afford this. I don't have time for this. I'm not ready for this. It's too much, whatever it is. I think 
looking for, you know, those Instagram pages that are evidence-based, that are licensed clinicians, caveat with that, um, or looking for books, literature. But I think, yeah, going back to some of those more nuanced websites, right, IOCDF, the International OCD Foundation, they have a whole page of resources. Same thing with the Association for Anxiety and Depression. Same thing with American Psychological Association. There's a lot of free information available that's really grounded in research. I think one of my favorite books is by Mark Brackett. It's called Permission to Feel. He also has a phenomenal podcast episode with Brene Brown that's just enlightening and beautiful. Um, anything by Brene Brown. She's yeah, love with the Brene Bible. Brown. Yes. Queen. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, there's another book called Attached. Who is it by? Um, Levine and Heller. This one's phenomenal. Um, and then I love the book. It's a little more scientifically dense, but it's called The Body Keeps the Score. And it's all about trauma. And yes, yes. So I think that those are probably the top ones that I'm dishing out to clients readily. That's Dr. Anderson, correct? That advice keeps the score. It's Bessel Vanderkolk. Oh, that's right. Yes. Amazing. Such a good book. I, my favorite, which is not done by mental professionals, so maybe I shouldn't be recommending this here, but I just loved what he, and he's very clear and disclosed that. Um, but his name is Jackson McKenzie, and it's a book called um, Whole Again. And it's like rediscovering your true self. And the whole thing he talks about is that you have to lean in. It's the opposite of what you think that we create a protective self. And a lot of those are maladaptive over and they work they work when we're children or whatever, right? Like so whether it's anxiety, depression, perfectionism, alcoholism, workaholism, whether it's avoidant behavior, whether all of it a protective self and not feel the pain that we're experiencing. And he talks about the only way to heal from the pain is to go back into the pain. And and he's it's counterintuitive. And so he just gives, you know, just this overarching, like, understanding of identifying the core wound, identifying your protective self, and then going back into that core wound in a way that's safe to then be able to learn to love ourselves again and be whole. And it, it was so trans, I mean, it was life changing. That was one of the best books I've ever read. I joke that he's like a prophet and it's like quoting the Bible on page 30. Prophet Jackson McKenzie says he's a beautiful writer. I love Andrew Huberman, just research animal, just produces things so readily that are so applicable and really outlined, you know, do this, this, this. Um, I love. I don't actually know what profession he is, so we're kind of dipping our toes outside of maybe licensed professionals. But Adam Grant, I just love everything that he produces. I think it's just so heartfelt and um, so beautiful, so beautiful. Um, gosh, I'm trying to think of where I turn to on social media. You know, another non licensed person but just with really beautiful rich experiences jay shetty i love him oh he he's so fun to listen to makes such great content yeah yeah he's delightful um yeah i mean everything kind of takes me back to like all of brene brown productions 
Like she has this special on HBO um, called Atlas of the Heart. And I know I've personally watched it 10 plus times. I've had girlfriends over to watch it. I told every client ever to watch it. It's it's truly special and applicable and beautiful. Um, there's an OCD specialist named Jenna Overbaugh. She's on Instagram. I love her. Uh, Is that called with a J or a kind of like a black hole. Yeah, Jenna Overbosch. Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about, you know, this incredibly important subject matter. And you were so articulate and so, so beautiful. And I, I'm just so glad to know you and to have you as a friend. And, um, you know, it's 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 really amazing to see you do your craft in person. I mean, what you've done with these women's circles and stuff is just astounding. You're so you're so talented at your craft. Um, thank you for coming on and sharing. Is there anything else just to wrap up that you want to share? Any thoughts or take home with our audience about anything that you want to share from your heart? You know, I think at the core of my heart is something I always communicate to my clients, which is no one is exempt from the human experience. And I think you know when we consider anxiety, and like you were mentioning, even even with the trauma. Our, our instinct is to avoid, get me away from the thing that's causing me discomfort. And I have to tell you, my imposter syndrome coming into this was just on fire. And there's something, I think, the reason I'm sharing this is because, you know, my worst outcome was like, okay, Lauren, it's going to suck. You're going to say something stupid and we're just not going to publish it. That's what's going to happen. And... It up, then it started stopping. It's like my entire nervous system just calmed and everything was okay and it was wonderful. And I think that's maybe the message I want to send to anyone experiencing anxiety is that rarely does our worst feared outcome come true. And if it does, we can tolerate it. And just kind of this message that we can do hard things. Wow. What a profound, beautiful way to end. I love it. You know, it, it's incredible what the human spirit can can survive and the resilience in people. And in many ways, their biggest tragedies, many, many will say, have shaped them and made them who they are. And many are super grateful on the other side, even the worst, very worst things, right? I know that about my my life. I can look now, not while I was in it, my gosh, but afterwards be like, oh, I'm so grateful that's not been because, right? Well, that's a beautiful way um, to talk about it. And how... How unbelievably adorable that you felt like Buster syndrome with your incredible competence and great, um, great gifting. But that just is so human. Thank you for sharing that because it's so human. I mean, we all we all know what that feels like. So, Lauren, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for all you do. And hope you have such an amazing day. I hope we see I hope I see you at the at the beach. <laughs> do you need help with the next steps for your financial plan? Think Capita. Capita is a financial network built around you. They have a team of financial advisors, CPAs, estate attorneys, Medicare providers, and social security experts to help you accomplish your financial goals. Call to schedule a complimentary consultation at 801-566-5058 or visit their website at www.capitafinancialnetwork.com. You can also check out their financial education podcast, The Financial Call, available on Apple, Google, Spotify.